everybody. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm actually the small groups director here at Severance. I'm not normally the one who's, who's teaching, but uh, today I get the honor of uh, continuing our series called The Way of Jesus. We're actually in week 13. And um, in this whole series, every week at the intro, we've talked about why we're, we're doing this study through the book of Mark. Really what we're doing is we are trying to really see who the real Jesus is. And the reason we're doing that is because we all have a tendency to create a version of Jesus, oftentimes on accident or involuntarily, but we create a version of Jesus who we're more comfortable with. And it usually ends up being a lot like us and liking things we like and not liking things we don't like. Uh, but the problem with that is that Jesus can't help you at all uh, because he's made up. He's not real. So we need the real Jesus because that's the only place we're going to find help and healing and all the, all the, really the help we need in this life and all the change that we need in our lives. So uh, today we're going to be, um, since it's Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to be in Mark 11, which records Jesus' really royal procession or his arrival as king in Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to be in Mark 11, verses 1 through 18. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll get started here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. <clears throat> If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said, said to them, what are you doing untying the donkey? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. <clears throat> and he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. <laughs> so again, what we just read um, really just shows us Jesus' royal procession or his arrival as king in Jerusalem. And when we look at this story, uh, it really tells us something about this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And I think on the front end, maybe the most obvious thing is, is his kingdom, we can kind of see this all through the New Testament, his kingdom is so paradoxical. It's so upside down or backwards from what we would expect. For example, you have the creator of the universe, uh, this guy Jesus, who we've been reading about raising people from the dead and healing the blind and the deaf, coming into the city and he's riding on a donkey. You know, not the most majestic creature. Nothing against donkeys if you're a donkey fan, but not the most majestic creature. But then you also have Jesus arriving um, really as king, but he's going to achieve his victory through dying. It just seems so paradoxical. And then maybe the most intense uh, paradox we see here is that when Jesus arrives, 
as this Messiah for the nation of Israel, you know, this, this king of the Jews, instead of going and confronting the Romans, you know, the occupying force, a.k.a. the bad guys, he goes right to the temple and he confronts, confronts the Jewish religious leaders. You know, you can imagine them being like, whoa, whoa, we're, like, we're the good guys. What are you doing here, Jesus? But um, what these things show us, and we're really going to focus actually primarily on that kind of upside-down thing that we see. Why did Jesus go to the temple? We're going to focus on that to really look at one aspect of Jesus' kingdom and really one paradoxical aspect of his kingdom, and it's this. This will be kind of the main ideas today. We're going to look at how Christianity, Jesus' kingdom, Christianity, is the most inclusive belief system in the world and the most exclusive belief system in the world at the same time. And then we're going to look at how in the world is that possible. So those will be kind of our three main ideas today. So the first thing we're going to look at is the inclusive nature of his kingdom. And I'm going to reread for you the really fun part of this passage uh, when Jesus gets angry. So we're going to read verses 15 through 17. It says, They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple through through the temple complex. <clears throat> then he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. So uh, you can learn a lot about a person by what makes them angry. You can learn kind of mundane facts, like what their favorite sports team is. You know, if they're throwing stuff at the TV, that's their favorite team, ironically. Um, you can also learn about someone, really, the most important things about them, the things they care about most, the things they love most, Whenever that thing is threatened, you will see them become angry. And so we get a really keen insight into Jesus in this passage because we get to see him angry. And what we see is that Jesus is passionate about his kingdom, including all people, people from all nations, all backgrounds, not just the nation of Israel. And you see that when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And if you go back to whenever the nation of Israel was first established, really, when God first uh, made his covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a.k.a. Israel. And he said, and through you, all the peoples of the world, of the earth, will be blessed. So even from the very beginning, God's plan wasn't just that the nation of Israel would know God and be blessed, but that through the nation of Israel, all the nations would be blessed and would know God. So Jesus is angry because not only is Israel not blessing those around them that they're supposed to be blessing. They're actually profiting off of them. They've turned the fact that they're God's chosen people into a way to make money. Because what's happening here, all this buying and selling, would have been going on in the outer court of the temple. So just a little information on the temple. The outer court, which was the biggest area of the temple complex and was known as the court of the Gentiles. So this was a place in the temple where even if you were not Jewish, you could come and you could worship the God of Israel. And in this area, you would have had all kinds of large crowds and commotion happening when Jesus gets there. All kinds of large crowds, all kinds of buying and selling, because someone had kind of a convenient idea, kind of a, you know, I guess a business-savvy idea. They said, hey, well, we have all these people traveling from around the world, really, to come worship here at the temple, especially around, like, Passover. Why don't we just sell the animals they need for the sacrifices right here in the temple? You know, it sounds like a really practical business idea. Because then those travelers don't have to carry, you know, lug along these animals to sacrifice. You know, it's just super convenient. And we'll have money changers who can just exchange the foreign currency for what's accepted here. So you have this buying and selling going on. And it would have been not, uh, it would not have been a small operation. Um, Just to kind of put it in perspective for us, 
the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, <clears throat> he said that at one Passover, 255,000 lambs were bought and sold in the temple. So this was a huge, this whole temple court would have just been full of people buying and selling, crowds, animals everywhere. So imagine that you are a Gentile, and you've come to worship the God of Israel. And this is what you walk into. And the only part of the temple that's set aside for you, where are you going to find a quiet place to pray? Where are you going to find anywhere to actually sit and take a moment to dwell on the things that God has done and how great God is? You can't. There's nowhere for you to do that. And not only that, but the lamb you're carrying around, you just paid way too much for. <laughs> you paid like four times the going price because they, that's why Jesus says you're turning it into a den of thieves because they were not just selling things. They were, they were marking them up and they were really turning something that was supposed to be you know, the Gentile court, for them to worship, they turned it into something all about themselves where they could make money and profit off other people. So you have this really ugly form of hypocrisy taking place. Because you can imagine, you know, the, the Jewish religious leaders saying, well, we have a court of the Gentiles, and we sell them everything they need to be able to sacrifice to God. This is for them. But really, instead of including them in the worship of God, they were excluding them and extorting them. And if you're wondering what that random fig tree incident was. Uh, the commentaries have a lot to say about the fig tree incident. But uh, what that was all about was, was just this same thing. It was, it, the fig tree represents Israel, and, and whenever Jesus sees it, it has pretty leaves, these nice big leaves, but no fruit, meaning that it was all show and no fruit. So in Israel, in the temple, you had all this religious show, but no actual fruit, no, nothing actually of value being produced. And when Jesus was throwing people out and flipping over the tables, it would have made a scene. It would have been something that was obviously going to catch people's attention. But I think the most astonishing thing about it is it would have seemed like Jesus was preventing people from worshiping God or coming close to God. It looks like he's throwing out the entire sacrificial system because where are they going to get the animals now? How are they going to actually do what they're supposed to be doing? And what Jesus knew, what he knew is that he was actually, through his death, just a few days later, through his death, he was going to make the temple system completely obsolete. Access to God would no longer be through a temple or through the nation of Israel. It would be through him. And we actually, when he does this, we actually see the inclusive nature of his kingdom kind of coming into fruition where now no one culture gets to own Christianity. And you even see this same question the early church was asking early on in, in their existence. If you read the book of Acts, the question came up, do you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? And because of what Jesus did, the answer was a resounding, no, you don't. And uh, I think this is such a, a cool way that this is illustrated, where the inclusive nature of God's kingdom is illustrated here and now. Um, I'm going to read you some stats in just a second. <clears throat> but um, you can actually look at the world and the way that the world religions are kind of, kind of divvied out across the world to see something really interesting. It kind of goes against the way that we typically view how culture and religion relate. So the, kind of the running idea, and uh, it's a theory that makes a lot of sense, is that religion is invented by a group of people who start to tell stories. You know, that it kind of is the glue that holds them together. So you've got this culture, they're telling their stories about where they came from, where the earth came from, why we exist, and then where we're going. You know, what happens after you die. And then those stories over time become a religion. So basically, religion is just a culture's stories kind of organized and put together. And that makes a lot of sense until you get to Christianity. Because whenever you look at the population centers of, of where world religions were founded and then where all their adherents live today, you actually see that um, largely they don't move away from where they're founded except for Christianity. Listen, listen to this. So in his book, Making Sense of God, uh, Tim Keller kind of maps that out. He says, over 90% of Muslims 
live in a band from Southeast Asia to the Middle East and Northern Africa. So again, where it was founded, 90%. Over 95% of Hindus are in India and the immediate surrounding areas. Some 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. However, about 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% live in Central and South America, 22% live in Africa, 15%, and this number is growing fast, live in, a live in Asia, and 12% live in North America. So Christianity really is the only actual worldwide religion. And, and even if you're still wondering if it's true or not, those numbers at least tell you that something is different about Christianity. And that's what we see here is this inclusive nature of God's kingdom. He's saying it doesn't, no one culture gets to own it. It's above all culture. It's above all differences because it's, it's bigger than that. It's the most inclusive belief system in the world. And <clears throat> before we move to our next idea, you know, I'm kind of just harping on this idea of the inclusivity, but I want to give us two implications for us today. Like, what is this, why does that matter for us today? So first, for my fellow Christians in the room, um, which is a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us, there is a, uh, a real caution that we need to take from this story. We need to look at what the heart of the issue is here that has Jesus so angry. So what the Jewish religious leaders have done is they've taken the temple, something that is supposed to be about God and for everyone, and they've turned it into something that is about them and for them. And as Christians, we can do the exact same thing with our churches. We turn church into basically our own little gated community or our own little, you know, like country club because we might not be, you know, swindling people, selling them lambs for too much for their sacrifices. You know, that's, that's going to weird people out, but not, that's not how we do it. We do it a different way. We do it by catering to our own preferences, whether that's just our cultural preference or, you know, how we grew up with it or what we're used to, what we're comfortable with. We can do it by, through religious show, basically just ma making religious busyness kind of a cover for our own self-centeredness in the same way that the nation of Israel did. And by doing all that, we can exclude those who Jesus would say he wants to include. So Jesus' passion for including the outsider, for including all nations, should be our passion as well. And the second implication would be for those of you who are listening who aren't Christians, which we know some people join us here and watch online, and we are so glad that you are listening. Those, some people who are just trying to figure out who Jesus is, what he's all about. Like, you are so welcome here, and we are so excited that you would spend your time with us and that you would actually listen to what we have to say. But if that's you today and you're trying to figure out, you know, what is this Christianity thing all about, the implication for you is that from this, you can see that God is passionate about removing the barriers that would keep you from a life-changing relationship with him. Jesus is passionate about bringing the outsider in, and thank God that he is, because otherwise I'd have no place with him. None of us would have any place with him if Jesus was not passionate about bringing in the outsider. So that's what we see here as far as the inclusive nature of Jesus' kingdom from this passage. And this is an idea that's not, like, hard to sell in 2023. You know, the idea of inclusivity is like a positive. You know, you might even be thinking, like, hey, thanks, Jesus. You know, that one's pretty nice. But, um... Christianity is not only the most inclusive um, belief system in the world, it's also the most exclusive. And that's what we'll talk about next. Sec kind of the second main idea here <clears throat> is the exclusive nature of his kingdom. Uh, so we mentioned earlier that, that Jesus, when he's kind of causing disruption to the buying and selling, he's in the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. If you know how at all about how the temple was set up, there was also a very inner room of the temple. <clears throat> and that was called the Holy of Holies. And if you want to talk about an exclusive room, this is about as exclusive as it gets. So the Holy of Holies would have been where the manifest presence and glory of God would rest in the temple. 
It was separated from the rest of the temple by this really thick, huge curtain, this giant veil. And that place was so exclusive, this room in the inner, of the te- inner room of the temple was so exclusive that only one person could go in there once a year. It's about as exclusive as the place can get. So only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And all these rules, all the, all, even the Holy of Holies, all the rules and regu- regulations surrounding the temple really just were God's way of communicating a spiritual reality that I think we all know deep down is true, which is that we just can't walk into the presence of God without something being fixed. Because of our sin, we can't just waltz into God's presence and just for everything to be fine. And this idea is not really unique to Christianity. It's not really unique to Christianity that something needs to be fixed or repaired or something made right. Uh, that's really the basis of all world's religions. You got, hey, something is wrong. Here's what you do to fix it. Here's the five things you need to do. You know, you got the, the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism. You've got all these ideas of how to fix those things. So that's not unique to Christianity. And even if you don't adhere to a religion, self-help books fly off the shelves because we know something needs to be fixed. Something's not right. Something needs to be improved. Where Christianity differs is that while other world religions would give us those list of things to do. Here's how you solve the problem. Jesus' presence on earth and his whole message while he's here and everything he did while he was here communicates this is unique about Christianity. He says, you can't solve the problem. You can't do it. There's only one person who can, and it's me. That's what Jesus would say to us. This is where it starts to get exclusive. And One thing that you've probably noticed if you've been following along in this series to the book of Mark is the way that it seems like Jesus is like unnecessarily secretive sometimes. Like he'll do a miracle and say, don't tell anybody. Or someone will say, you're the Messiah. And he's like, you're right, but don't tell anybody. Well, in this passage, we've been talking about that a lot in my small group. Like, why does he keep doing this? And, and there's, you know, you can have some good conversations about this. But in this passage, all of that secrecy is over. It's done with. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, you know, on a donkey, that can look to us, it's very paradoxical, because it is. It's a humble king entering in. But he did that deliberately to say, hey, I'm the king, I'm arriving. Because in Zechariah 9.9, there was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it wasn't just some coincidence. Jesus is purposely saying, that's me. I'm that king. And then you see the way that, you know, he's got these people coming with him, kind of praising him and, and declaring that he's this king and this coming Messiah, and he doesn't tell them to be quiet. We didn't, it's not recorded in Mark, but in, in Luke's um, account of this same incident, the religious leaders actually tell Jesus. They say, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. They can't say that about you. And, uh, and Jesus, in uh, no uncertain terms, tells them no. He says, hey, if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out instead. Which that's like the greatest, like, it's not a hard no, it's a really hard no. He's like, oh sure, they can be quiet, but then you're going to hear some rocks cry out. So obviously he's not, uh, he's not toning down who he is here. And then he goes into the temple, which is God's house, and says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So I heard one pastor put it this way, and I really liked it. He said, Jesus was humble, but he was not modest. Meaning that Jesus was humble, he was a humble king, but he never pretended to be less than who he was. And while other religious leaders, other founders of other religions, even authors of self-help books still say, let me show you the way. Let me show you the way to God. Let me show you the way to a better life. Jesus said, no, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So no one comes to God except through Jesus. And whenever he died of just a few days later, 
that holy of holies had that giant curtain separating it from the rest of the temple. That ripped from top to bottom. And what that signified was that now access to God could be had through the death of Jesus. That's the only way. And maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, there it is. There's the Christian, we have the only way thing that I don't like about him. Um, I just want to point out two things real quick. <clears throat> First off, uh, all belief systems are exclusive. And what I mean is that you think you're right and other people are wrong. Even if your exclusive belief system is, I believe all other belief systems are correct. They're all right. They're all climbing the same mountain, going to the same place. Um, that's still exclusive because all the people who believe those other things don't agree with you. They say, no, this is the only way. And you're saying, no, they're all the right way. That's still exclusive. However, more importantly, the inclusivity that we love about Christianity, the inclusivity that says no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're welcomed in, that inclusivity is only possible because of the exclusive truth claims from Jesus. That's the only reason it's possible. And maybe you're wondering, how is that? Why is he talking in paradoxes on a Sunday morning? What is going on? Um, so that's what we'll talk about next. Um, we'll talk about how it can be both the most inclusive and the most exclusive belief system in the world. I'm just going to read one verse. This is verse 18. It's the last one we read today. <clears throat> so after Jesus causes the ruckus in the temple, it says, Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. So the way that Jesus entered into this city, the way he came into Jerusalem, all, all that he was doing to show that he is the king, he is the Messiah, it really uh, it forced the hand of the religious leaders. And what I mean by that is they, they had a choice. They could either accept him as king or they had to get rid of him. One pastor I was reading this week said it in a way I thought was really helpful. He said they either had to crown him or they had to kill him. And spoiler alert, sorry for those of you who are coming to the Good Friday service, they killed him. You might have heard that before. They killed him. But that was not a surprise to Jesus. Because if you were here two weeks ago, Jesus was already talking to his disciples. He said about his death. He said, I have to go and suffer and die and resurrect. He's, he's already talking about this. So it wasn't a surprise to Jesus, which means that the whole reason that he came to Jerusalem, the whole reason he came to earth was to die. Jesus specifically said that the reason he came was to seek and to save the lost. And the way he was going to do that was through his substitutionary sacrifice of himself. Meaning that he lived the life that you and I should live but never can. And then he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And through that, we can have access to God. And what that is, <clears throat> that unmerited favor, you know, that we, ne we don't deserve Jesus to do that for us, but he does it anyways, we call that grace. And grace is the reason how Christianity can be both the most inclusive and exclusive belief system in the world. Grace is kind of that hinge that brings it all together. And the reason for that is if no one, if no one is good enough on their own to get to God, be accepted by God, and all of us are equally dependent on Jesus, on the grace of Jesus to get to him, then it doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, what your temperament is, what culture you're from. You are not more or less likely to be accepted by God than anybody else. I'll say that again. No matter who you are, because of grace, you are not more or less likely to be accepted by God than anybody else. And to kind of explain this further, for example, if access to God or being accepted by God was dependent on following a list of rules, <clears throat> then 
by default, if you were a very disciplined person, say you're a disciplined person either by nature or just by your upbringing, then you have a huge advantage of being accepted. It's way more likely you'll be accepted by God just because you're more disciplined. And if being accepted by God depended on being part of a certain culture or adopting a certain way of living like a certain culture would live, then what that means is if you're born into that culture, you have a huge advantage over people who have to get rid of their old culture and adopt a new one. And last example here, if, if being accepted by God, being included in his kingdom and being included in his family, if that was dependent on you, your good works outweighing your bad works at the end of your life, then if you're born into a family full of dysfunction and abuse and addiction, that leads to you probably making some really major bad decisions when you're younger in life, then you are at a huge disadvantage from, you know, goody two-shoes Dave, who's born in a little nice family and only has this much bad to make up for, but you have this much bad to make up for. That's not an even playing field. And if we use any of those other criteria for being accepted by God, then what will happen, what will happen is you will start to look down on and exclude people who aren't as disciplined as you or people who are from a different culture than you or people who just aren't as clean-cut as you. But what Christianity says and what, what Jesus says is, you all fall short, you all are welcome, and I am the only way. If you want a succinct explanation of Christianity, that's it. You all fall short, you all are welcome, I am the only way. So a Christian is not a certain type of person. There's not like a you know, a certain demographic or nationality that's more likely to become a Christian. We kind of see that when you look, again, at those statistics about Christianity being a world religion, actually. There's not a certain type of person that's a Christian. A Christian is someone who has humbled himself before the king who humbled himself for them. A Christian is someone who has come before Jesus and put their faith solely in him. And the reality is, just like Jesus forced the hand of the religious leaders when he arrived in Jerusalem, the way he arrived... He forces your hand and my hand the exact same way today. The truth claims that he made about himself, the way that he carried himself, does not leave us with the option of just treating Jesus like an advisor or a counselor or a friend. He just doesn't leave us with that option. We have the exact same option that they had in Jerusalem. You can either crown him or you can try to get rid of him. You can crown him or you can kill him. And I mean, you might hear that and say, no, I don't want to kill Jesus. I just don't think he's the son of God. I, you know, I just don't think he's, um, you know, all that Christians try to say he is. I, just, I think he's a nice historical figure. I don't want to kill him, though. What you've done is you've gotten, you're trying to get rid of the real Jesus because he didn't leave us with that option. He didn't say, I'm a way, or let me show you the way. He said, I am the way. <laughs> so, as it's famously been said, Jesus kind of leaves us with the option of, of understanding him either as a liar meaning that he knew he wasn't God. He knew he wasn't the savior of the world, but he pretended to be, and he's misled millions of people. Or he was a lunatic, meaning he was crazy and he really thought he was God, but he wasn't, and he just acted genuinely as a crazy person. Or he was actually Lord, and we should treat him as such. Those are the options we have today. I'm going to call up the worship team. We'll actually close down now. Um, but like, I've been, like we've been saying this whole series, uh, we've been talking about how we need the real Jesus. And the real Jesus doesn't really leave us with that option. You know, we need the real Jesus because he's the one who can actually help us. He doesn't leave with that option of just treating him as just a friend or a counselor, as a teacher. He is all those things, but he's not just those things. He's also the king of kings. And what we read about today was him arriving in Jerusalem as 
king. And, and you really can't have Jesus as friend and counselor and comforter unless he is your king. But when you choose to put Jesus as the king of your life, when you choose to put your faith and trust in him alone and, and really bow before him as king in your life, your life will completely change. Because when Jesus made the temple system obsolete through his death, he didn't really get rid of the idea of the temple altogether because really what he did, he essentially made a bunch of little temples. Because now the presence of God, the, the manifest presence of God does not reside in the Holy of Holies, doesn't reside in the temple. It's in his people. God lives in his people, meaning that now we have the capacity, we have the resources to be a people who really embody this paradoxical kingdom we're talking about. We, we have the resources to be a type of people who are inclusive of people from all backgrounds and nations and worldviews. We, we can include all those people while at the same time not compromising the truth. We can be both. And we can be people who love those who hate us. We can be people who actually go through this life in a way where we are able to have joy in the midst of suffering and we're able to have hope in the face of fear. But the only way that happens to us is if Jesus is our king. And, and when we, as Christians, don't live that out, it's because we've forgotten that. and We've forgotten the grace that he's extended to us. But we have the resources in Jesus as our king for that to truly be how we live, that we could be a paradoxical people who are inclusive of all those around us. <clears throat> so the question for us today, really the, the question for this whole series is just, you know, kind of leading up to this idea that, you know, will you crown him? Will you surrender to Jesus as king? Will you follow him? And I just want to say, he's, he's, he's a king you can trust. We're all following something. We don't call it our king necessarily nowadays. We're all following something. But Jesus is the one good king. He's the one good king you can trust, and you can know that because he was willing to humble himself and lay down his life for you. You don't find kings like that just lying around. Jesus is a different kind of king, and you can trust him. Whether you're trusting him for the first time today or you're trusting him just a little bit more today than you did yesterday, you can trust him. He's a king worth following. Let me pray for us and we'll close. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are, we are so grateful that you are king and that we are not. I think when we're thinking straight, um, it is such a blessing that we don't get to pick what you're like because you are so much better than anything we would ever pick. God, help us to see that today. Help us to just have our eyes open more fully to the reality of who you are, to the reality of your grace and your love and how fully accepted we are because of you, not because of us. Just help us to trust you more than we did yesterday. God, help us to, to just love you and help us to love the people around us who are hard to love for us because they're different than us. God, make us more like you. Give us a heart for people who are different than us. And may that come from just seeing your heart for us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.